Boat Trader is America's largest boating marketplace with over 100,000 boats to choose from. We offer simple, comprehensive solutions for those looking to sell, find, and finance new or used boats. Visit BoatTrader.com to get started. Hunting boots are a critical component of any successful hunt. Whether walking a short distance to your blind or trudging miles through rugged terrain, your feet are carrying the load. Without the right boots, you could give up early and lose out on that trophy just over the ridge. At Midway USA, we make selecting boots for your next hunt easier. With just a few clicks of a mouse, you can decide on what's important, like waterproofing, insulation, size, width, and savings. For just about everything for shooting, hunting, and the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. Welcome to the Elk Shape Podcast. I'm Dan Staten. This is your blue collar, do-it-yourself, self-guided, public land, elk hunting learning curve resource where we leverage hunting to create more personal development. Our goal is to educate and encourage our listeners to become the best possible version of themselves through hard work, delayed gratification, and being accountable to themselves. Rhabdomyolysis. Simply put, you did too much and your body cannot keep up with the cellular waste caused from muscle breakdown. So a breakdown of muscle tissue that releases a quote damaging protein into the blood. This muscle tissue breakdown results in the release of a protein that's called myoglobin and it goes into the blood and myoglobin can damage the kidneys. The symptoms of rhabdo or rhabdomyolysis is a really dark reddish urine. We always used to say Coca-Cola. It's a de- decreased amount of urine. Uh, you have weakness and like ridiculous muscle aches, swelling. The good news is it can be repaired or treated with pretty aggressive fluid replacement. Uh, basically, it's treatable by a medical professional, but it also requires a medical diagnosis and you'll have to do lab testing to check your CK levels. That's creatine kinase. Uh, it's a short-term deal. It can resolve in a couple of days or a few weeks, but it is critical. It needs emergency care. Uh, today's podcast, we are going to go over rhabdo with someone who that I basically am responsible for giving them rhabdo. Uh, rhabdomyolysis, uh, You've heard people say rhabdo in the CrossFit world. It's just a simple condition. And the muscle, the skeletal muscle tissue is dying and releasing substances into the blood that cause kidney failure. And it's usually caused by like a specific event. The most common injury is just straight up overexertion, um, sometimes drug use, but I've never had that be the case. And so in my history of owning a CrossFit gym, and we talk about this in the podcast coming up here, I've seen three individuals get rhabdo like confirmed, go to the doctor, stay overnight. And all three of them were really fit, really fit people. And so there is an inherent risk at doing cross training, functional fitness, CrossFit style workouts, uh, and doing particular movements and repetitions when they're paired in the right environment. And I'm going to talk about those today with y'all. We're going to cover rhabdo because a good elk hunting, bow hunting friend got it by doing a workout that I was in charge of making. I want to talk about that. It's not to scare you. It's just to educate you. I think that uh, it's something that most people don't even know about. So we'll talk about it today. And I've never had rhabdo, just so you guys know. Uh, My wife's never had rhabdo. Most people will never get rhabdo, but a few might 
if they do the wrong thing. So we're going to talk about that today. We're sitting down with Corey Miller. Corey is a former archery shop owner of 15 years. He resides in Longview, Washington, although he's trying to move to Montana. Currently, he is a rep for PSE Archery. He has the Northwest Territory. We're going to talk about his archery shop days, a little bit of elk hunting, and about his story on Rabdo. It's going to be an awesome podcast. Today's podcast is brought to you by Vortex Optics. I wanted to take a minute to talk about the three pieces of Vortex that are in my backpack for elk season. The first and the one that gets used the most is UHD 10x42s. I do carry an adapter to put it on my Outdoorsman compact tripod and I can sit there and glass, which is my preferred way to glass is with binos on a tripod. I recommend everyone try that if you're in good glassing country. The next piece is I have the attachment to put on the same tripod a 65 millimeter angled spotting scope Razer HD from Vortex. And that little guy is designed for phone scoping if I want to digit scope animals and get footage, really clean footage from the iPhone. I bring the spotter. Uh, if I wasn't worried about that, I wouldn't bring a spotter. I'm not really sizing up bulls and trying to decide if they're big enough. That's not me. And then the last thing I bring is a Vortex Razor HD 4000 laser range finder. You know, for years, uh, Vortex had a couple range finders, and I just never really liked them, so I didn't use them. And finally, this thing came out, and I put my Leica away for good. And I've been using this thing, and it's awesome. And I recommend that maybe you check it out, try to find a good deal on them. They're a little bit of an investment, but they'll last you a long time. And the reason why they will is if you break it, they'll fix it. They have the VIP unconditional warranty, and that is awesome. Let's go through a couple sponsor readouts, just shoutouts, and then let's get to the show. This will be a fast one. Kinetrek, Basemap, Kafaru, Matthews, Grim Reaper, Phelps Game Calls, Baku E-Bikes, Wilderness Athlete, Sika Gear, Climate, Hamsky Rests, Tight Spot Quivers, Black Gold Sights, Lakewood Products, Off Grid Food Co., Crossover Symmetry, Black Ovis, Last Chance Archery, AAE Veins, and Northwest Retention Systems. Guys, you have a lot of choices on podcasts. We appreciate you tuning into this one. Let's get into the show with Corey Miller and let's talk about Rabdo. Good morning, Corey. How are you? I'm doing good. How are you? I'm good. I just hit record because there's small talk that needs to be on here. Okay. You can probably hear my bulldog eating its uh, breakfast. Yeah. What's his name again? Casper. Casper. How old is he? Oh, he's going on seven, I think. Or seven. Oh, he's in his prime. Yeah. <laughs> live for long. <laughs> my dog's six, and she's starting to slow down just a little, man. Starting to sleep a little bit more than I'd like. Yeah, that's that's him. He's pretty big, so he's pushing 80 pounds and has a hard time in the heat. So where do you live there, Corey? Are you in Eugene, Portland? I'm in uh, Longview, Washington. Okay, so you're you're just on the Washington border? Yep. When you had your archery shop, did you pull people in from Oregon, or was it just mainly Washingtonians? Um, Oregon and Washington, but the shop's actually in Oregon. Oh, okay. I put it in Oregon because of the sales tax part. Yep. So the consumer wouldn't have to pay sales tax. And, and uh, you know, I really kind of thought at some point, you know, Washington would make it where Oregonians would have to pay sales tax, like California and all the other bordering states. And uh, it, it finally did 
do that, uh, but it was you know just this last year here, so I didn't get a reap a lot of that benefits from that. How long did you have your um, archery shop, man? Uh, Fifteen years. Oh my gosh. Okay, so we should probably get into that. There's going to be some fun stories. I want to know how many dry fires you've witnessed, things like that. But uh, let's get into it. This you're Corey Miller. I will say this about you, Corey, and I really mean this. I've met a I've met a lot of people in my life. I'm almost forty. You're one of the few people I've spent very little time with, yet I feel like you're a super good friend for the time that I have shared with you. Uh, super likable, funny, witty, smart, and we have very similar interests. So, not to boost your ego, but man, I really dig I really dig everything about you and. Uh, I hope to, to get to know you better today. That's my goal. So give uh, the listeners a little background on Corey Miller. I was born in Oregon. I moved to Washington, um, married for 29 years, and uh, opened up an archery shop 15 years ago, and now currently work as a regional sales manager for PSE Archery. So living the good life. Yeah, yeah, you are. So, okay, so marriage for 29 years. Let's go there first. Did you guys uh, ever have kids? Um, my wife had two previous boys when we got married, and uh, I wasn't able to have children of my own. Um, we didn't know that until we actually spent a lot of money trying and then come to the conclusion, like, maybe you should go get tested. And uh, and it was me, which, you know, I was okay with that because I went into the marriage knowing that. And um, so now we have three grandkids, uh, which is really cool. Um, and I'm probably better off because now I'm a little bit more mature and ready for kids or grandkids than I was for kids probably being young. Yes. Being a grandpa is cool. Um, uh, what's their ages and do they live close to you where you're pulling some babysitting duty duty quite often? Uh, not as often as we would like. Um, uh, we got a two, six, and eleven, I believe. Okay, so you got the spread there. That's cool. Yeah, that's good. Uh, I met your wife, and uh, that was very brief. And then you you travel for your job. Seems like you have a. Is it the Northwest Territory, or, or what is your territory? Yep, territory is Northwest. Uh, so it's Oregon, Washington, Idaho, and Montana. Man, that's big. That's big. Okay. Which bow shop sells the most uh, PSEs? I think still currently Triple X Archery. Triple X Archery, and that's the name of the shop you used to own. Yep. It was a surprise to me. I didn't realize that I was that big um, with PSC. I've got a couple shops definitely knocking on the door this year that will probably, I think, pass me. Good. Good deal. Yeah, their success is your success. Um, okay, so, man, you sold a business. I did it, too. It's different for everybody, but let's talk about entrepreneurship, the good, the bad, the ugly, because still an entrepreneur, which is just a fancy way of saying I refuse to work for somebody else, which means I work a lot more hours for myself and uh, gives me the autonomy in my schedule to do things like mm, elk hunt a lot. But uh, how, when you first opened your shop, man, like how did you scrape up the money to sign a lease and do a personal guarantee? Did you have business partners? Did you have seed money? How did you start it? And how did you know that you were going to be able to sell bows? 
Um, so I'd been shooting bows um, for quite a long time at that time. Uh, just as, you know, I started out as, as a hunter and then somebody said there was a competition in archery and that's all it took for me being competitive. And I went to my first tournament, 3d tournament and just kind of fell in love, seeing all the cool bows and stuff and said, man, I want to do that. Uh, struggled learning, asking questions, doing all of this stuff on my own and you know umpteen times you know people are like oh you need to open up your own shop you need to open up your own shop i don't know anything about business um and i just happened to become friends with a person where basically all the stars aligned uh his parents were they had owned their own businesses and uh so he was familiar and so we went in as a partnership so I knew I had somebody that could kind of help me with all the unanswered questions. Um, he had a godfather that had some money that would loan us some money to start the business. I was still working at the time. Um, actually, I was working for a pa at a paper mill. So I was able to have four days on and four days off. So it was it was nice to be able to, you know, be at the shop other than, you know, like say you're working now, you're working seven days a week. Um, sometimes I'd pop in before I'd go to work at the mill and sometimes after I'd get done at the mill, just really, you know, working a lot and, uh, and it was working fine. We were growing, uh, it was very exciting, you know, remember selling the first bow and thought, man, we just sold a bow. Okay. I think we can do this. Um, and I think we, we managed and we did really well until 2008 um when the market crashed mm -hmm. yes my job the mill the mill shut down so i lost my job um and then it was really uh, a lot of soul searching at that point you know whether or not we were going to make it and how we were going to make it and uh, at the time my partner had been boycotting fishing for many years now and um and that was his passion was fishing but he was so mad at the way fishing had been going with all the rules and regulations and he just stood his ground and boycotted it and it was about that time i think he actually slightly before that he started fishing and getting the bug again um so it worked out actually probably pretty good as best as it could at that time um so when when we were both going to try to have to make a living out of the shop he kind of found another job uh, that would allow him the freedom uh, to pursue his fishing passion, which was guiding. And uh, so he took that job and um, for a little bit there, it kind of helped out at the shop. And then we just decided, you know, it wasn't in the shop's best interest or his best interest. And uh, so uh, I took over the entire shop at that point. Um, but it was a scary, scary time at that time because I, you know, basically you're all on your own. And when you have a partner, somebody does so much and then you do so much. And so you didn't really get to do everything until that person's gone. So, um, but it, we turned it around and uh, dug out of the ashes of 2008 and it's been going great since. 
man, business partnerships, I've had them before. I have them now. It's a, it's a, it's a weird deal. I mean, it's like another marriage to some degree. It's all about communication, kind of figuring out your strengths, their strengths, your guys' weaknesses. So I imagine you were probably the guy that was out there in front of the customers. Like we'd want you or personality interacting with the customer base. Yep. Yeah. I was that guy. Dustin was really good too. Dustin, Dustin, uh, he's one of those crazy rain man that he would remember a customer's name. Just, you know, meeting somebody for a minute, he would remember everything about, I'm not like that. It takes me a long time to remember names. And Mm -hmm. he was, he was really funny and witty too. Um, but he, he had more of the business background and I had a little bit more of the techie knowledge and the customer service skills and, uh, those other, I guess, traits that make a successful bow shop. Yeah. I don't know what makes a successful bow shop. You probably know better than me. Um, most of my reps have been with my local pro shop, Spokane Valley archery. And you know, Josh Jones pretty well. Um, I've known him for 20 years. We feature him a lot on my YouTube channel. And so we've introduced him to a lot of people on the interwebs and, if people can kind of get over the fact that he sound comes across as a little pretentious, uh, the dude's pretty sharp, uh, very analytical and and nerdy. And watching him run his business, man, it's it's a tough business, really, especially through the last four or five months. You know, they had to be closed. He had to pivot, things like that. A lot of businesses have. So uh, do you think archery shops are growing? Are they dying? Where are we at? Kind of like just looking at the market. Um, I think they're they're doing good. They're growing. Um, we, we, we're been, we've been lucky that a lot of the manufacturers have protected the shops from a lot of mail order, Amazon, eBay stuff on current models um map protection that helps a lot of the shops you know so we're not getting in price wars where nobody's making money and then you're shutting your doors but the biggest the biggest key is with archery and pro shops is that this is a very unique business where it's so personal so hands-on um you know when you go and you if you're a new archer a lot of these shops are teaching you how to use the equipment you know they're personally setting them up to you uh i would say you know Maybe the closest thing would be golf in a way that, you know, somebody could actually watch your swing, start building the club to that. Um, but then then it's over at that point. You know, it's it's not as as hands on continuously with a pro shop. I mean, there's so many guys that come in and just talk hunting, elk calling, you know, bow tuning, broadhead tuning, form, uh you know, every, every aspect of hunting and shooting a bow, whether I be target or, or hunt or hunting. And you can't get that on eBay or Amazon. So the shops that provide great customer service are thriving. The guys that don't have good customer service are the ones that are starting to see the suffer. Um, you know, I, I'd say 20 years ago before the internet and before more options you know some of the the pro shops just kind of went through the motions and they didn't provide great service and you know you'd hear stories like ah, i can't stand my shop and 
you know, that's very unfortunate, you know, and I think, you know, the, some of those shop owners just felt like they didn't need to provide that because they didn't have, you didn't have a choice on where you could go. Well, now you've got plenty of choices. So you better be giving great service because uh, that's what, you know, sometimes I felt like I was a bartender sometimes, you know, like people would come in and tell me their sob stories about hunting or target archery or whatever it may be. And you got to listen and you got to try and help them through stuff. Um, and it's fun, though. It's fun to see the success on, you know, when you've helped somebody. And so, you know, you're, the, the thing with, with an archery shop, you know, it, you can either, in my opinion, you can do two things. You can either be crabby and still make some money or you can be extremely happy and um, have great service and maybe make a little bit more money. Either way, you're never getting rich. <laughs> no doubt. No doubt. You might as well embrace it and have a good time with I, what you're doing. There can't be that big of a margin on a bow. Honestly, it's like, I don't know. I couldn't see it being more than 40%. Oh, no. The bow's the worst. It's not even in there. 30%? I don't know what the number is. doesn't matter. But, you know, obviously accessories and things like that. And then um, shop labor, that's just always like a weird point. Like, I think some people's shops aren't don't charge much for labor or don't like they'll include it if you buy something or buy a new bow. Whereas at the end of the day, usually shop owners got to train a couple of schmackies to do some of the stuff, build arrows, swap strings, throw, you know, tune a bow or whatever. But, uh, at the, at the end of the day, man, like if another customer walks in and you're setting up a rest for somebody for free, you're going to have to stop that and go talk to that customer. You know, it just depends on how it's a juggling act. Uh, yeah. It, uh, yeah. The, you know, you, you look on the outside and you think, man, look at all the money they're they're. but you, you, until you've actually owned a business or really, really been in the, the backstages of where the money goes and how it gets laid out. It's, it's an eye opener on what's left and how it's left and um you know the other part was for me you know i i'm a very loyal and person and um the the stress of hiring somebody it, it's like wow you know just one more thing because you know if i hired you and i told you i was going to pay you x amount of money your life is now revolving about what i told you and and i would take that stress home of like man if if it's slow you know i i can't cut his hours you know i'll cut my pay to make sure because that guy's family is based off of what i told him so it's a weird it's a weird deal being an employer and you know it does make you feel good that you help people and employ somebody but uh, at the you know in the end of the day too it, it also comes home with you um on the stress side of things of it well, one thing that would stress me out as a shop owner, and if people aren't excited to talk about business, oh well, uh, I am. And it's the same for any business. Like I walk into an archery shop, man, I see the walls just – let's take the archery shop that we were just at together a couple weekends ago at Big Sky in Montana. Beautiful shop. But I walk in there, and I don't know the square footage of that facility. You might, but it's definitely – if you include the basement – Oh man, they're way, way over 
10,000 square feet, maybe 20. I don't know. What's the square footage you think? I don't know. It's huge. Giant. And then you look around, you walk around, and I see a tons of stuff on the wall for sale, which means that's inventory. Um, and they got a counter with maybe two, maybe three bow presses. Uh, and they just got, you know, the place is filled up. So do these shops buy these products on credit or do they like pay for them in full? Uh, do they like join buying groups so they can get a discount, um, pay half, pay later? How do these guys manage money out versus the money on the shelves? Cause it's insane. So there's, there's a couple ways on, you know, there's some really big shops and successful shops that will just buy it right then and there. Um, and then the majority of the shops basically use, uh, a lot of companies will give you like a 30 day, you know, so if you're buying arrow rests and sites and stuff like that, they give you 30 days. So you order, make some orders and you got 30 days to pay for stuff. There are buying groups. You can join buying groups and that helps get your cost down. But you're talking like a dollar here, $3 there type of thing. It's mm. not like, you know, huge amounts, but you know, those, those dollars add up when you're doing, you know, big volume, you know, 1% is, is huge. You know, if you do 500,000 and you do another 1%, I mean, another $5,000 in your pocket is, is nice. You can do a lot with that $5,000. Um, but the, the main thing with the boat companies, it seems for the most part, a lot of them, we have like a dating programs. So dealers can order a bunch of bows and not pay for them until September. So cash is kind of king when you're in a small business owner, you know? Yeah, but there's, there's two folds. There's good and bad because that's typically the number one reason why shops go out of business is because of those programs. Um, and then it also puts a lot of strain on the manufacturers because, you know, they've got to go get loans to be able to front you the money. And so as everybody's just kind of, borrowing money to borrow money to borrow money and the end of the day when when you've got a shop that borrows too much product um and usually it's you know they're selling the bows but they're using that money to buy sights and rests and arrows and targets and all this other stuff and then at the end of the day when that bill comes due they don't have that money Mm -hmm. That they makes have sense. It in inventory, but they don't have it in the product that they had bought from you. Um, and so that's usually, you know, it's hard and it's a strain on the shop. And, um, and then, then if they go out of business, then the manufacturer is trying to get blood, you know, out of a turnip. And so it, it can, it can definitely get a shop in trouble if they use it the wrong way. And, you know, and I was guilty of that, you know, especially, you know, and then when like 2008 hit, you know, you just didn't have the warning of what was happening. And then all that bills were paid, were, were due. And, you know, pretty much all the manufacturers worked with us and said, you know, we'll work out some payments. And yeah, it was scary times. You know, I, I like seeing like a lot of my dealers. I'd rather see guys do a small dating order just to kind of get their shelves filled for the next year get a good look at the product line and then start selling off that. So when you sell one, you go ahead and replace it and pay for another one. And, and that way you're not looking at the end of the year with a big, huge bill from umpteen different bow manufacturers. So 
Yeah, I just don't think that's a good way to go. I So when I ran my business, the gym, like I, I had to buy workout equipment on the regular and I would just pay in full. You could lease it. You could do payment plans, middle finger to payment plans, dude. It's not, that wasn't me um, at all. I was like, we got to pay for this now and we just got to save up and if I were to run an archery shop, obviously this is from the outside looking in, I would just run lean, uh, super lean and pay in full, you know, and just slowly start to build up that ability to carry more and more inventory and make sure it's paid for. I'd have a damn good way of making sure there was no shrink. I would make sure like as far as, uh, well, shrink is pretty easy in an archery shop from what I've seen. Um, people can walk out the door with stuff all the time unintentionally, intentionally, employees, you know, when you see someone working on a bow, they're grabbing stuff off the shelf, this, that, the other package, I mean, stuff might not get rung up, like, there's got to be a good way to, to just run a business strong and efficient and be organized, um, and then probably build the culture of your shop, so, for example, if I had a shop, I'd probably sell spot hogs and black golds, and I wouldn't carry a bunch of HHAs and I mean you could go down the laundry list and if guys want those cool you can but you can always order those those onesies and twosies in for people yeah exactly uh, and yeah I I agree you know we we specialized in products that we believed in yes um not not meaning there wasn't other good products and there are but then you know you know your job as an owner and, and a buyer was to look and say well where can I make the most money which ones do I believe in what's a better bang for the dollar mm -hmm. you know this this arrow rest might be a little bit better but i just know i struggle anything past say 159 dollars for a rest so why would i bring in a rest that's costing 199 exactly um, and even though yeah it might be better but i know i'm not going to sell as many um and it's it's kind of the same thing on the bow line of things too you know and i was you know when you get into it you just think oh i just want to buy every bow brand too and that way people can not have to go anywhere else, but here to shop. And, and, uh, you know, so I want to carry all the major lines and, and then a couple of small lines too. And at the end of the day, say you say 300 bows a year, you're still going to sell 300 bows a year. Um, that's what your clientele is. And, and their, your clientele is going to typically buy what you're selling. So by, by having all those options just means you sell, less of everything and then then you lose your buying power in in those um so there's there's kind of a fine line that i i always, i kind of feel like as long as you can have one to two of the major four companies and then you kind of can grow from there and, and that's kind of like you say that's what we did and that was where it was it was kind of strange because you know you you grow the business and oh man we did you know an extra thirty thousand dollars this year so what do we do with that do we buy more inventory or do we hire an employee? And then you grow the business more and you, okay, now it's buy more inventory. And now we, we grow the business and then we hire another employee. So at the end of the day, it's, it's really kind of weird to, you know, you've, you've built a bigger business, but not necessarily you that this, you yourself aren't making really any more money. Nice. So when you sold, when you, yeah, right. <laughs> well, it sucks. I mean, well, yeah, I mean, it's, but, but, you know, that's the, 
you know, like I say, you get you can get some joys out of different things of knowing that you're employing people. Absolutely. That is super valuable. Are you kidding me? I mean, that's what makes this world go around, in my opinion, is these small businesses that employ people. And then these people are counting on it. And it's kind of very delicate to our system. You're damn right. That's a good thing, man. That's it's powerful. So I was going to ask you, you sold your interest to your partner or did you guys both sell to a different entity? Me and Dustin's thing was a little weird because the the shop was completely upside down in debt because of 2008. And so basically, I just acquired all the debt. The business wasn't worth anything because the market crashed. There was a couple other factors that went in. We had another another shop kind of close to us that shut the doors. That, to me, after going through that, scares me more or any other shop than, say, another shop or a sportsman's warehouse or anybody, competition coming in. Because when competition comes in, you, you've got time to plan it. You can say, okay, wow, well, we, got, we, got, we got neighbors. You know, what are we going to do? How are we going to need to address this? And you know you're going to lose a little bit of business, and so you, you're, you're a little cautious on maybe your orders. You're going to maybe back down a little bit here and there. You're going to do a wait and see and um, type of approach. But all of a sudden, out of the blue, you know, when somebody comes in and says, hey, so-and-so is going out of business. Oh, really? Yeah, they got all their bows 50% off. So we had a shop that had about 100 bows in stock on oh, top of that God. 2008. And so they just flooded the market and, uh, you know, not only just bows, but arrow rests and arrows. And, you know, they just did a fire sale and you can't react. You can't change anything fast enough to react to that big of a blow. Um, so it was it's kind of how that went. Um, so it was. And I was crazy enough to to think I could dig myself out of it. Um, it took me took me a year. I remember just laying in the bed and just going, you know, God, I got all this bills due and I got $100 in the bank. Mm. Get up, you go to work and you sell some product and you say, man, I got $900. You pay a bill and you go back to bed with $100 in your, in your <laughs> bank and you just did it day after day after day. Yeah. Um, and uh, like I said, I dug myself out and it was, uh, it was rewarding to know and it gave you confidence that, hey, no matter what things are going to throw at you, if you just dig deep and work hard, you're going to get out of it. So, you know, this COVID thing, it's got nothing on 2008, in my opinion. Yeah, I agree. And actually right now, you know, when I go, I've you know been traveling around finally now that they've somewhat released us and now Oregon's trying to capture us back up again in Washington. Um, you know, most my shops are all up and there's there's a couple factors to that you know people have more time on their hands so they're able to spend money yes we got we got uh, some stimulus checks that helped want to spend some money we've got unemployment which is paying extremely well where you know in 2008 you didn't have any bonus money and there was nothing to go back to right now you know i haven't haven't seen you know at least out here and the West Coast, we haven't seen a lot of unemployed things. You know, people aren't knocking on the door, calling the shop, saying, hey, are you guys hiring? I haven't seen any of that. 
So I, I think, you know, people still have jobs or hopefully they do. Hopefully um, they're just temporarily laid off. The ones that it's really, I think, affecting is the, the owners, the, the small business people, uh, not so much the employees yet. So, so far, it's, it's, it's got nothing on 2008, in my opinion. No doubt. Now, I think, man, unemployment's running out for some people at the end of July. Stuff's stuff stuff's yeah well so we think but man we got a second wave remember I hope not sustainability I think people need to get get going I think some people aren't as motivated to go find a replacement job or whatever or take something that pays less than their current unemployment another prime example I mean look at Idaho Idaho sold out a non-resident elk tags already oh yeah people quit buying elk tags in Idaho sucks go to Oregon. <laughs> yes, come to Washington. We've got lots of elk. And Colorado. They're slow movers, too. They all got hoof rot. They all got hoof rot. Yeah, man, we're going to talk about elk hunting for sure. Um, so we're, we're going to get into elk hunting, but I got to transition to um, the, the we got to get into the, the bulk of this podcast, which wasn't archery shenanigans and business stuff, but I find that super interesting. So I'm going to tell a little story and then we're going to fill in with. Uh, so we went to. Um, Ryan Lampers had the, his Western Hunting Summit elk for more or less is kind of a camp like I do, but it's he calls it a summit. And Ryan and I have been good friends since 2011. Uh, he's gotten pretty popular in the hunting industry because he kills big stuff and he's also one hell of a guy. He's just a really good human being. And people start to... F- Every time you're around him, he makes you a better person. Absolutely. Um, I've known Ryan, I think, about probably about the same time. Um, you know, we did a train to hunt together, and he was a customer. Lived actually like four hours away from me, maybe four and a half. And uh, I would do a lot of his bow work and arrow work, and mm-hmm. we became really good friends, and then he moved away. Yeah. Then he moved to Montana. Uh, so he's doing that. Um, I kind of pay him back. He helps me out with usually one or two camps a year. And so we just kind of pay each other that way. So I'll, you know, so I snagged my family. I said, guys, I got to do the summit and then we'll jam down to Yellowstone and go on an epic camping trip. And Ryan wanted me to do, he basically gave me two hours. He's like, you have two hours to fill. I'd like you to do your your raw raw speech on why uh, that you do on elk shape as far as just disciplined life and, and leveraging elk hunting and get people fired up about it's the gift of hunting and how you can use it for personal development. And then he said, I wanted you to talk about things you used to do versus things you do now that leads to your success. And so I was like, okay, for that part, I'm just going to show people. So this part I wanted to get your take on. So we brought these clays out. We put them on the tin of 3D targets on the tin ring. And we set up five stations. And we had guys do 30 seconds of lunges with no backpack on. And then they had to drag their partner 40 meters or 40 yards-ish to the line. And once everybody made it back to the line, we said shoot one arrow and everybody agreed that their that 40 yards was definitely in their effective shooting range. And I was like, okay. And I think we had 28 guys, and I think two out of 28 
were able to do 30 seconds of lunges, drag their partner 40 yards, shoot one arrow, and bust a clay. Two out of 28. Were you shocked at that? Not really. <laughs> I mean, I just, you know, I shoot in target archery and shooting under pressure and shooting the stress and in front of people when it all matters until you do it a lot. And even when you do it a lot, it's, it's, it's difficult. And I think that the, hopefully the biggest thing was just brought the awareness of like, wow, <laughs> how, how it changed everything for them. You know, and, you know, because I, I, as a, you know, as a shop owner, you know, you hear all this, the stories about how great people are and what their effective range was, or, you know, they were out in 3D and man, I was just smoking that 3D target, you know, at 80 yards and, you know, I, I need a slider and I need to be able to shoot out to a hundred and, you know, it's just uh, it's a lot of false hope of being able to stand there calm, cool, collect and, and lob arrows at a, at a target until, things get real um and you know and i've learned that and i try to you know at my shop talk and talk about that i run a two pin system um i have a 20 and a 40 and mm -hmm. i anything past 40 yards i'm pulling my rangefinder out and i'm ranging it and i'm sliding my side if i have time and if i don't have time to do those things i have no business shooting oh without a doubt i already know what's going to happen i'm going to ruin my my day, my hunting partner's day, if not two days, you know, I'm going to be a jerk in camp probably for the rest of the hunt because I'm going to be so upset with what I just did. I'm not going to be enjoyable to be, <laughs> you know, there's so many things that selfishness um, and, and it's just not, you know, I don't want to, I don't need to kill an elk that bad or try to kill an elk that bad. Um, and so the 20 to 40 thing really slows me down two pins. I got less clutter in my sight window. Uh, I just really want to take my time and make sure, you know, you, you can't control everything, but you can minimize a lot of things. Uh, and, and that's one of them of being in a hurry to, to take the shot and shooting further than what you really are capable of doing. And so I think hopefully that was an eye opener. And doesn't mean those people's success is going to go down, you know, because of this. Hopefully it goes up because they're going to make and maybe wait for a better shot opportunity. Um, you know, it, it, I just always the back of my head, you know, laugh, I guess, when guys would say, man, if I would have just had one more second, you know, if I didn't have to have dialed, you know, I knew that thing was exactly 76 yards. I'm like, well better than me because I, I i'm not as good as a rangefinder um and there's no way i can judge yardage like that you know in, in in a split second it's just it just and and there's just too many what ifs and i've been on that what if you know one too many times and i don't ever want to be there again so but yeah i, I mean there were some that weren't very far off the clay so you know, it's not that bad. I mean, there still were, were good kill shots. Um, there were some that were really pretty far out. But, yeah, well, it was a good, good, good eye-opener for hopefully for a lot of those folks. Well, we do the same things at my camp. Um, 
the very first thing we do within 20 minutes of meeting our campers is like, grab your bow, grab one arrow. We're going out to the range. And hopefully um, people understand that when they submit, I have a questionnaire when they register for Elk Shape Camp and it is, what is your effective, what's your effective range? Now they're all going to cheat. Well, this podcast won't drop until after my last camp of the year. So if anybody's going to my 2021 camps, you'll have a leg up, but don't lie and don't put the furthest distance you think you're effective air on the side of, you know, being conservative. But most people actually put down numbers between 40 and 60. I've only had one guy put 80. Um, and we test that. We take them all out to wherever they said, and then we move them five yards closer. So one guy said 80. We moved him up to 75. He was the first one to shoot, and he knows nobody at camp. He doesn't know me and my squad, and he's got to shoot one arrow in front of us. And what we're trying to create is this high pressure, high stakes, and uh, we want to expose people because they don't get that many reps in those scenarios. You know, a lot of people don't shoot competitively, and if they do, they usually don't make the shoot off. And so they don't get exposed to these high, high pressure deals where, and I argue that when a big bull's in front of you, the stakes are, have never been any higher. You, you know what I mean? So that's why it comes down to experience and how many times have you had a bull inside your effective range? And, and so the more time you have, the better you'll be. But, uh, yeah. I'd say that shooting under duress is important, like creating some physical strain and shooting with a high heart rate. But more than that would be pressure, high pressure scenarios. So if you can get like some buddies together and maybe do a little friendly wager, whether it be dollars or beer or some sort of you got to jump in a cold lake, whoever loses, whatever, and get some pressure, it'll elevate your game. But uh, the point of all that was that those 28 guys – majority of them when they were at full draw they could not wait to get rid of that arrow and you could see it and there was some slap happy trigger punching dudes in that in that scenario let's talk about that quickly from your you're a pretty dang good archer what are some ways you can kind of mitigate that angst i hate to use the the tp word but that little bit of there's several different types of target panic, if you will. How do you mitigate that and be okay with slowing down your process and really focusing on that clean break in practice? Lots and lots and lots of practice, but practicing on certain things. And, you know, everybody just thinks shooting arrows is practice. You got to break it down, um, you know, truly work on certain aspects of the shot, you know, whether or not it's, it's aiming, grip, anchor points, you know, release breaking is, you know, like today I'm going to work on just nothing but release. And so you, you might be doing nothing but blank bail shooting um, or just up close shooting, um, you know, grip, same thing. You're, you're not going to concentrate on where arrows are going. You're just working on that grip. But um, you're trying to, you know, when you get into those situations, if you have a shot process, of what you the steps you go through and you got to keep your mind occupied on those because if you start wondering about the end results or the cash prize at the end uh you know that elk's going to be on the the magazine uh you know you 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 get in front of yourself 
uh, that's when I think the wheels fall off. You know, so going through and having that routine every time you shoot. So when that pressure is on, you know, you keep running through, you know, get my grip right, draw back, hit my anchor, look through your peep, look through your peep, let the pin settle, 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 squeeze, 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 boom, fire. Keep your mind occupied on all those those steps will help. But it's still, you know, it it you know, and it there's gotta be sometimes too a voice in your head of saying it's just not gonna happen. You know, the I am I just ran up this hill and I can't hold the pin on there. And you gotta be able to be able to walk away and let down. And that's the difference from target archery, is a lot of times we have time to let down. Heart's racing. You know, in, in Vegas, you know, you've got two minutes to get those shots off. So you've got a clock. You know when the clock is. Hunting is different because you don't know. I mean, you could let down that bolt still stands there. Or you could just hit your anchor and it bolts. So the, that unknown is, I think, is probably the, the hardest part because you just you don't know. Um. It's kind of my advice on it. I don't really, you know, you just got to keep trying to put yourself into those situations. And there's other guys, it's it's funny, who who don't shoot all that good. And they just kill animals like it's nothing. And and I, I just truly believe that they have the ability to stay calm at that whole situation. It doesn't bother them. They don't think too much about it other than... I need to put this bullet or this arrow right there and boom, it happens. And that's all they're thinking about. I just need to put it right there. Wow. The, the intentionality of it is probably what it boils down to. You have time right now to not just go back to the yard and shoot and knock out the, you know, the dead center of your target 20 yards, but to actually break up your shooting into, okay, today I'm working on, I think shot execution, blank billing's awesome, but I think grip work is really important. And then the whole idea of being able to let down, if it's not, a, if it's not going to be a controlled shot, that takes the ultimate discipline. And I encourage people to try that, to, to let down. If you're not, if you just, the pins moving all over the place, or you just feel like you're, you have some, some panic setting in to get it off. So I feel you. So that was cool to see that at the camp. So you weren't surprised. I was a little surprised because I thought we'd have more guys breaking clays. I brought a whole box of clays and we broke two. So, well, going back, uh, you were there. Yeah. You were there for the Brian Barney shoot. Yes. So it was very surprising in the fact that, as, you know, we started out and we started shooting at a fairly decent distance and we just started, I mean, we were a pretty good, big group of guys moving our way back to a fairly difficult distance, you know, so then all of a sudden you, you put them under a lot more distress and they couldn't do it at 40 yards. But, um, so that was a little bit surprising because it's not like we didn't have good shooters. We had some good shooters there. But I just don't think, you know, standing on the line with, you know, 20 other guys, you get lost in the line. It's not a real big deal. But when it's 
like it's just four of you up there and people are staring right at you like we you know you and i were doing their heart rates were up yeah it, it totally changed it for those people so absolutely after the camp we went into uh, the lecture it went well uh we discussed kind of really the whole concept of separation is in the preparation what these guys need to do year round and how they can leverage hunting and then obviously i went into a little bit of elk tactics on well this is what i used to do this is what i do now and then we finished up with a workout the workout was so i didn't have any gym equipment and i wanted to do something that was kind of functional but definitely different than your normal rucking or i'm gonna hike with the pack on or I'm going to go for a run. Like that's what most guys think that they need to do for elk hunting. And I keep saying this. I don't know if people believe me, but I usually only wear a backpack when I'm hunting. I do hunt a lot in the spring for bear and then a couple of scouting trips. But other than that, I don't put a backpack on and go hike in my neighborhood or mow the lawn with my backpack on. Uh, I do functional fitness and it's pretty much CrossFit type stuff. And I work out for at most at most an hour and in that hour when I'm actually doing a workout it sucks and I want to quit almost every day and I don't and it just adds mental capacity so I was like I got to get these guys exposed and it was crazy because Brian Barney was there you were there uh Gritty was there and then all the campers and they they did the workout so I'll, I'll tell everybody what the workout was but I will tell you that Brian Barney is a phenomenal mountain runner. Corey Miller is a phenomenal mountain runner. These guys can run up mountains that most of us would be like, uh, I'm going to walk. That's too steep. You know, these guys are used to running and gaining elevation. And most of their runs are centered around how much elevation gain versus mileage. Uh, well, in the races, you know, my training, unfortunately, is because I don't live in elevation and don't have a lot of hills. So I don't get the hill work that I need to. But yeah, you, you should, you should do tons of elevation. Elevation is almost more key than the actual miles. Mm. And that's what Barney focuses on. Yep. Elevation climbs. Uh, you know, I, I follow a guy that lives in Portland area where, you know, he'll do that forest park and, you know, he's. He's usually putting on, I don't know, six or seven miles, but he's getting in, you know, anywhere from 16 to 2,000 feet of elevation climb in that, which is pretty good, you know, and you start adding that up all week. Um, you know, you're getting into, I think I remember, gosh, it was, I, I was getting ready for one of my first 100K and uh, Cameron Haynes' brother, Spike, I reached out to him because I was getting really nervous about it. And I said, you know, hey, how many miles should I be doing a week? I'm, I'm, I'm doing, you know, roughly 60 miles, 60 to 70 miles a week. And he says, oh, the mileage is good. Just make sure you get Bert in. And I'm like, well, how much, Bert? I can't remember. It was something like 30,000 feet of climb a week. And I'm like, how is that possible? <laughs> so I wasn't even remotely close on my Bert. And uh, it probably showed it was probably one of the. Yeah, because these these mountain runs, you're gonna get it. Um, they're they're crazy, but yeah, vert is super important. It is, and so the workout was with a partner. Both partners run 800 meters ish, so about a half mile, super flat in the town of Bozeman, or actually Belgrade, super flat, not very high. 
when both partners got back, they could start doing the calisthenic portion, which was 200 air squats total, only one person working at a time. However, the caveat was the partner that wasn't air squatting had to hold a squat. So isometric, when they were done with those 200 squats, and uh, there was 100 push-ups, again, between the two people, not each, one person working at a time, the other partner had to hold a push-up position. So there's some isometric there through the midline. And then the last portion was 50 synchronized burpees. And that's not uh, 50, like, that wasn't uh, 25 each. That was 50 apiece, which maybe that should have been a little less. I'm not sure. And then finish finish with an 800 meter run. Most people finished between 20 and 26 minutes. And that was kind of good. That's what I wanted. I wanted a little bit longer piece, like just over 20. I didn't want to involve workout equipment. I wanted people to have shared suffering. And I wanted people to basically have the pressure of somebody else depending on you. Like if you want to rest, then we can't continue on until you're ready to go. And I tried to pair people up with, you know, that were at similar levels or whatever. And I would say it went well. Um, I was surprised that Brian Barney was laying on his back when we were done. Um, and I'm not throwing him under the bus. Brian Barney is better shot than me. Brian Barney can outrun me. Um, Brian Barney is a world-class hunter and more importantly, a world-class human being. But Gritty Bowman was standing on his feet like because he does this CrossFit style stuff. It, was, it wasn't bad. And there was this chick named McKenna, who's a very good CrossFitter. And she was like, yeah, that was a good warm up." And I was like, okay. Uh, and then the guys like Barney were just laying on their back because they just run. They, you know, he doesn't do a ton of that cross style training stuff. And I think he was like, oh, I need to add a little bit more to my workout diet. But uh, you looked pretty good to go. You were red, red in the face, gave high fives, had a dinner with everybody. Great camp. Took my family to Yellowstone was out of cell phone service for several days, get back to cell phone range, and I get a text from Corey Miller. What did that text say? I'm in the hospital with uh, Rodno. <laughs> <laughs> and you were nice enough to send me a definition of rhabdomyolosis like I didn't know, which I laughed. Um, and I must have missed that part of you talking about it. I don't know. I was, <laughs> I was upstairs. <laughs> because it would have saved me a lot of Google searching at two o'clock, three o'clock in the morning. Yeah. So let's go through it, Corey. Uh, And for those listening that don't know what rhabdomyolosis is as a former CrossFit gym owner in my waiver is a very specific paragraph on rhabdo that says you could get rhabdo from doing these type of workouts. Please make sure that you've consulted your, like it's a cover your ass type thing. And when I, when I got that text from you, I know you and I wasn't super worried but I was like worried about the other 28 people that went to Ryan's camp that I didn't know a thing about. And I was like, okay, and we're going to talk about being susceptible, but I just was worried about the other people. I'm like, okay, well, if Corey got it, maybe other people got rhabdo. And I've had a couple people get rhabdo in the last 11 years of owning a CrossFit gym. So we're going to explain to you guys what rhabdo is. But the only people that have ever gotten rhabdo, Corey, in my experience, it's about three, all of them very, very fit people. It's never the people that are not that fit because you have to be pretty fit 
to punish yourself enough to give yourself rhabdo. So let's break down what rhabdo is. I want your definition and I'll backfill anything you miss. Boy, you asked me to be a doctor. Um, from what I understand now, it, it's it's muscle breakdown, and and you can there's a there's a couple of different ways you can actually get it. Uh, you know, Carex, you know, big muscle damage. Um, apparently, after being in the hospital, drug abuse, which we'll get into that, um, and overstraining your muscles and dehydration. So that's kind of, I know how you can get it and the end result, I don't know all the, the greatness of it, but the end result, it, it releases this CK is an enzyme, I guess, into your bloodstreams, which I think it attaches to the proteins that then go into your kidney and cause kidney failure. Yeah. That release of myoglobin in your bloodstream is what it is. And, um, that's the protein that stores oxygen in your muscles. And if you have too much myoglobin in your blood, it can cause di kidney damage. And then you basically pee out Coca-Cola color urine. And the, the CK is creatine kinase, and they can measure those levels. And a normal level in anybody after they work out is definitely under 1,000. And you text me that your numbers were at, I think, 56,000? Yep. And that's not the highest number I've heard of from people that got rhabdo that I know. But it's a significantly high number where you were smart to go to the hospital because they're going to have to get you on an IV. You got an IV drip, I'm sure. And um, you didn't, there was no dialysis, right? Like you just went and they, they just dripped you to death. Yep. They, uh, um, so I guess we can kind of roll back a little bit. So last year I was at the camp also helping Ryan. And, you know, they were going to do all this big workout and everybody's like, Corey, you going to do it. You're going to do it. And I'm like, I got nothing to prove. I'm going to go run 62 miles on the continental divide in a couple of weeks. So I ain't doing no workout. And, you know, and I knew because I don't do those and it's going to make me sore. And I didn't need to do that before a run. Well, with COVID, there's no runs going on. I haven't been training for a race. I've been training, but not race training and of course, so everybody's like, well, you're going to do it. And so I figured I'd do it. It would be a good kickoff. I do know I need to get back into the gym. So I did it. And me, and you said there was no prize at the end. And I thought for sure there was still going to be a prize. So I'd go balls out to try to win. <laughs> um, so after the workout, uh, the next day when I woke up, I couldn't put my right hand to my mouth. Oh, God. I could barely, I could barely get my left hand. I could barely brush my teeth with my left hand. So we went, we had class all day on Sunday. So there's a couple things that I did wrong. And, um, one, I took Advil. Okay. So I took Advil and went to class and throughout the day, I started feeling a little bit better. And it started to, do, you know, at by the end of the day, I could actually take my right hand and touch my face. So luckily, Mark took and talked forever. So they didn't have to have me do any shooting instructions because I don't think I could have shot my bow. I couldn't really even get to anchor. My arms were locked up so bad. 
me being me at the end of after dinner and everything, I thought, well, the more I sit around, the more I'm getting stoved up. So what should I go do but go run Baldy, the M, they call it. That's a steep run, by the way. Yeah, I, you know, so I get there. So I thought, well, I'm going to go do a run, you know, just kind of keep things moving. So I get there and I don't know the trail. And this gal's come run, she comes running down. And I said, well, how, how far is the trail? And she goes, well, it's a, it's a half mile this way and a mile and a half that way. And I said, well, you know, I'm, you know, me going, well, a half mile. I mean, I, I got to get more than a half mile in. I go, well, does the trail go up past that? And she goes, oh, yeah, there's plenty of trail up past that. I'm like, okay. And I said, so is it runnable? And she, she kind of laughed. And she says, well, usually I hike up the half mile side and I'll run back down the other side and, and I'll, I'll just do three laps. <laughs> and so I, <laughs> I start going up that steep side. And I can do, all I can just hear is her saying, I, I just do three laps because that thing was steep. Um, so I, I get to the top, I get to the M and then I keep going up and I got two miles of vert in, which was 2,400 feet. Jeez. Um, and then, uh, came back down and I would go back down the long side so I could try to get a little bit better stuff that I could actually run because it's so steep. You can't really run it. The hardest part, you know, my legs were just dead. Um, and then just try not to trip. And then if every time I would stub my toe and start to trip coming downhill, my arms weren't working. So I couldn't hardly save myself from falling. Um, so yeah, it was a fun, interesting, it was beautiful views. It was well worth, I took lots of photos up there. Um, got back and drank a big whopping, probably six ounces of water. Corey. Got to my, ho got to my hotel. <laughs> And had a beer and went to bed and woke up in ungodly amount of pain. Um, I couldn't, I couldn't move. Anytime I would move, it, the, the pain was just unbearable. Um, so I got out of bed at three o'clock in the morning, went out to my truck and got some Advil and took some Advil. Another big mistake. So... Kind of got a little bit of sleep, got up in the morning, went and seen a, a friend there in Bozeman and seen a dealer and then drove to Helena. Oh, God. And so it was. That's a long drive. Was that three hours, two hours? Yeah, but the drive wasn't over yet. So <laughs> I, get to, I get to my dealer, you know, and she's like, oh, what's wrong? I'm like, oh, I did this stupid workout. And I can't hardly move my arms. And. She's like, oh, well, here's this, try this, this blue rub stuff on your muscles. And so I rubbed myself all down with this stuff, you know, and it stinks and smells all minty and this like kind of like an icy hot stuff. And it really wasn't doing much of anything. And so I, I sat there for a couple hours with, with my dealer. And so I knew I had to go to Great Falls. So I drove from there to Great Falls because I had a dealer to see in the morning and I got to my hotel. I lathered up some more. Still nothing. And I hate ice baths. So I thought, well, I'm going to have an ice bath. So I filled the tub up with ice water and laid in that for 
20 minutes and it like it wasn't making a dent in it and then when i went to go pee it looked like syrup uh in the bowl mm -hmm. and so at that point i knew you know definitely something's not right um and was getting pretty kind of nervous about what was going on at that point and i i couldn't really move my arms much at all i i and they were coming becoming really lethargic like like it I couldn't, I couldn't move my arms very, any fast. And I almost had to actually use both hands to pick up my hand to, to put something in my mouth. Um, went to bed and woke up around two o'clock in the morning in pain so bad. And I started Googling what could be going on. So like I said, I've, I wish I would have known cause then I would have like, Oh, saved me a little bit of time. But anyway, so I, and I don't like doctors. I don't usually go to the doctor. I don't just kind of my thing. And so I was pretty impressed that I actually did go to the doctor. And so I honestly thought I would go in there. They were going to say you're dehydrated and you're being a wuss. You're sore because you finally worked out. Here's an IV and kick me out of my way. And uh, so they drew blood. I kind of told him what I thought I had. And uh, the doctor come in, he said, well, I, I'd like I would like you to to come back and uh, like do some IVs. And I'm like, come back, like, like, go get a hotel room and come back this afternoon and do some IVs. <laughs> and he says, uh, no, like um, your CK levels are typically supposed to be 100, 150. And you're at 56,000. Mm -hmm. So we're admitting you into the hospital. And uh, so you don't really have a choice. And I'm like, okay, well, this just got real. Um, so they, they put me up in a room, got IVs in me. And I, then I, I think I texted you and, and Ryan and, um, and, and my wife and, uh, so then on day two, they they actually went to six or 50, 58,000. Um, and then they were starting to see some stuff on my liver. Oh, man. My, my liver numbers were, were, were high. Um, and, and so it was kind of weird because the doctor, you know, the one doctor come in and, and so there, I, I kind of, I got really upset and kind of chewed their asses about it, but you know, he, I guess they're doing their job, but still he, he come in he says, so, you know, what are you trying to kind of figure out what's going on with me? And which I told him what was going on. And, and he says, so, so, you know, what, um, so do you do meth? <laughs> sorry yeah you know and, and and in the beginning i was just kind of like shocked like I, i'm not sure exactly i heard you because he had kind of an accent and i'm like I, I think i i think that he just asked me if i did meth i said uh, no and uh he said well your your liver's kind of really freaking out um okay and 
you know, so then they, they kept coming back to alcohol and um, it was really kind of making me mad. It's like, dude, I'm telling you, you know, this is what's going on. But they, and I think the, the liver um, thing was it trying to filter out what was all going through my body. Um, definitely the alcohol, you know, one or two beers didn't help with Advil. Um, and, and so those are the things, like I said, I learned about what not to do. Um, but anyways, uh, you know, and I'm, I'm thinking, well, I gotta get, I gotta get to work. I got things to do. And I, I started feeling better finally. And I was able to get some sleep in there. And so I'm like, well, I, I would like to go. And they said, well, we don't want you to leave. Your numbers are still too high and your liver's too high. And so I said, okay, well, I'll stay another night. And so when I, they came in like at two o'clock in the morning and drew blood. And, and so they, uh, I got up in the morning and I, you know, I just, they, they were kind of weird there. I kept having to ask for my results. I kept having to ask. Nobody was informing me on anything. So I finally said, you know, hey, did you get my, my results back? And and then she said, oh, wow. They just jumped to 68,000. Oh. So, so they're still climbing. And she said, and your liver, liver numbers just got worse, too. Um, it, so a little bit of panic was starting to set in a little bit and a little bit of frustration because I'm sitting there saying, well, what are we doing? What's, what's the plan? What is there? I don't know. Is there an action to take on this? I mean, do we just have to write it out? What type of number is becomes critical? Um, yeah, it was uh, very interesting. And, and it was funny because that day I actually felt the best. Um, physically felt the best. But, you know, doing the research, it, it, you know, it sounded like the, the number should peak around 36 to 48 hours, which I was well into that. So I don't know why it was so slow to peak. Um, and so, so then um, they, they did, a, they had to keep me another, another day. And then and they had to be scheduled for an ultrasound in the morning. Right. And so they did an ultrasound, um, ultrasound came back good. The liver, everything was good on the liver and the numbers dropped down to 43,000, which is still extremely high. And then they went ahead and released me because they knew I wanted to get out of there, you know, cause you know, my wife, you know, she's 14, 15 hours away. Um, and you know, if I need to be in the hospital, then I'd like to be in the hospital back home. Um, so I left and went and seen a dealer in Missoula and then went and seen a dealer in Great Falls. <laughs> and Jeez. Drank, a lot, drank lots and lots and lots of water. Um, and then uh, got home Sunday and went to... They gave me a release form and they told me, well, here, you need to go get your numbers checked when you get home. 
and just go into any walk-in clinic and they'll draw your blood and check your CK levels. Well, that's not true. Um, I had to go to three different hospitals before I could finally get somebody to, to check my numbers. Um, hence, probably one of the reasons why I hate the medical field. It just seems like it's all about dollars. Um, because everybody's just worried about who and how they're going to get paid by, you know, without a doctor's order. Um, and then when I got to my doctor, which I had to go into Portland to do, he's on vacation for a week. So finally, we could find a doctor to go ahead and sign off on it and, and got some blood. So I haven't got my results back yet. Um, so hopefully today they should get me my results and kind of see where I'm sitting. Yeah, I mean, this is weeks ago. Yeah, weeks ago. It's been, uh, yeah, it, it's been uh, over a week now. So the you know more about, I guess, this than I do. Cause, um, but like after you and I chatted a little bit last night to set this up, I still feel like I, I got all my range of motion for the most part in my upper body. But I can't lay on my stomach in the bed. It just rips my my chest and I thought gosh I went to go do a push-up I can't do a push-up so like is it or is my muscles going away are they like eating themselves and then am I gonna have to like rebuild and start out like super low weights and you know basically rebuild myself or are they just still freaking out and not functioning rhabdo in my experience is pretty easy to get the more fit you are the more things you can do um and that can also come across as the the, your ability to push past you know your body saying hey 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 slow down or whatever and we didn't do a good job but Corey has an extensive ultra marathon background extensive He's an ultra marathon runner. And so he does it in the mountains. Um, you've done a couple where they've had to pull you out of races. Like you wouldn't, you hit a check station and they're like, no, you're done. Whether it be they check your fluids or they check your temperature or they check your resting heart rate or your blood pressure. You've been pulled out of races before where you, if it were up to you, you'd keep going. So you're super mentally tough. Uh, which is awesome. It's a compliment to you. I, I applaud you. But also, you could be dumb in the fact that you, you, you're you very competitive, self-admitted it, and you're willing to put your body through hell to, to accomplish your goals. So uh, you have that going for you. You have that going against you. Same with me. Uh, currently, you know, your CK levels, we don't know what they're at, but they're probably still high, higher than 100 or 150 probably still in the thousands and creatine kinase is an enzyme found in the skeletal muscles, the brain and the heart. Your myoglobin is in the blood and urine. Um, potassium is another important mineral that may leak from injured muscles and, um, not creatine, but creatinine is a, is in your blood and urine. And that is just a, like a byproduct or a waste product when muscles get damaged and those are probably elevated and your kidneys are still probably working a little harder your kidneys are your filter your liver's your filter so you basically your garbage trucks are all full and they're still trying to get rid of cellular garbage and you just got to keep drinking your fluids and 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 
staying really well hydrated. And we're going to talk about your nutrition in a second. Keep getting in your rest. But uh, your body's still trying to get back to homeostasis. You're trying, your body's trying to get the thermostat back to 70. And it's not there yet, Corey. You know what I mean? And so, and that is going to be directed upon how your, your age and a bunch of other factors. But, you know, right now, you know, there's some things we can talk about. The, the first thing would be like, okay, uh, out of the three cases of rhabdo that I've seen personally, and I'm now counting you as one of them, all three had alcohol involved after the workout because you don't know. That's the beautiful thing about being an ultra runner. You know, you can go run 30 miles and at every finish line, there's, there's good beer, mm-hmm. um, you know, and there's nutrition in beer and there's not, it's all, not all bad, but it's not all great. Um, but you know, like the Advil, I think that the alcohol and the Advil were like the two yes. combined big no-no. And the run that you did with 2,500 vertical feet. Yeah, I think that was the price. I think I honestly, I think I probably would have been okay without that run. Yeah. I think that run, because I, I with the, the extreme dehydration um, going into the, the nutrition side, like I don't drink enough water. I don't drink water. I, my nutrition is horrible. Um, so I didn't have any water on that whole run until I got done. And like I say, you know, like six ounces of water isn't enough to do anything. Um, so I think if I wouldn't have done the run, I probably would have just been the typical, I'm sore. Eh, this is painful, not a big deal. Um, you know, and I've, I've been there before and it's usually like, okay, you're sore for a day, maybe two. And then it's starting to feel better. Like every day was getting worse. Mm-hmm. It was, it was. And, and so that, that was the part that was really making me nervous. And, and then the urine. Yep. So let's talk about the future kind of going forward. The workouts that will produce rhabdo the fastest are workouts that involve generally your body weight and high repetitions. So, um, anything with a lot of pull-ups and it's not the pulling up portion, it's lowering yourself down. That's called an eccentric phase. That's where the muscles lengthening under tension that will too many reps that can kind of set you on the, the path as well as in the workout that we did holding the squat. Those are big muscles that were under tension. That was more painful. I kept waiting for my guy like, dude, you need a rest so I can keep moving. Cause this is, this is burning. Exactly. Uh, that kind of, those kind of calisthenic isometric or eccentric based movements, those will, those can create a lot of muscle damage. So you just got to be aware of that, uh, when you're working out here going forward is you just can't do a lot of workouts, uh, cause now you're going to be super susceptible. Um, and I think you already are a little bit from your ultra background and, and just kind of punishing your body through those long runs. Um, yeah, see, that was what was frustrating when I asked the doctors. I'm like, I asked three different doctors. I said, well, now that I've had this, am I susceptible to getting this again easier? And not one of them said they knew. They're like, well, we don't know. Uh, we'll get back. Yeah. And none of them ever got back to me. I'm going to say yes, because I have a couple clients that, well, former clients that got rhabdo, they were fit, and then we literally had to have them on a short leash because they, if they did too much, they'd they'd have to go to the hospital and get IVs and they were fit. So it's just, yeah, I think you are going to be a little bit susceptible 
Again, it doesn't mean it's going to ruin your running career, but let's talk about how we can mitigate it going forward. So the first thing Corey Miller needs to do is get a Nalgene bottle that holds 64 ounces of water and fill that up, put some wilderness athlete or hydrate recover, whatever you want, something good, not bad, and drink that every day. And that's going to be like one of your benchmarks where you have to drink that much water. And I didn't say 100 ounces. I just start we'll start slow with 64 ounces of water-based fluid per day, which is new to you, right? Like you don't do that. Yep. Okay. So we want you to do that. I've been, I've been drinking two liters every day now. That's good. That's what I was suggesting. So two liters or 64 ounces-ish. Uh, what's your age? 51. 51 years young. Um, Corey's a BAMF when it comes to elk hunting, and uh, he's not overweight at all. He's a very lean guy, obviously, being an ultra runner. So the whole alcohol thing, we're going to start integrating a little bit of maybe a moderation in there. Well, more moderation. I don't know what your levels are now, but, like, we don't get to have a beer a day. You know, a lot of runners, especially ultra, ultra marathon runners, they kind of do these super long runs and they kind of reward themselves with basically bullshit nutrition because they can kind of get away with it. Just like elk season, like I'll be honest, I can get away with a little more BS nutrition when I'm elk hunting because I just need the calories. Well, same with runners, but imagine if you didn't do the BS and you put the good stuff in. So we're going to try to have you to not have a cold beer. And I don't know if you're a cold beer every day kind of guy. A lot of people are, uh, but we're going to skip that to every other day type of a thing. So if, if you're a kind of guy that winds down your evening with a cold IPA, which I dig, let's go to every other day. And now vegetables, fruits, and sugar. I would like you to reduce your sugar intake, which is going to be tough, bud, because you like sugar, right? Uh, I don't know if it's so much sugar because, like, I'll, you know, my, my, my routine for the day is – well, it, it, lately, usually it's not, but uh, it's a it's an iced coffee, and I'll drink that pretty much all day. Um, just one, you know, I just drink one. I kind of sip on it throughout the day, for the most part. Um, and then I don't eat until dinner. Um, so the, the sweets aren't really like a a big thing for me. Like I don't drink pops and, um, you know, if the wife does buy ice cream, I will eat it, but it's not like I'm asking for ice cream and cookies. So the sweet part, I think is probably pretty easy for me. My biggest thing is chips, salt, just lots of salt. Um, my sodium numbers have always been fine, even though I eat a ton of salt uh, but it's just the chips, chip, 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 chips all night, you know, after dinner. Um, so, so let's, let's back up, Corey. Let's try to get you to eat breakfast. The, the problem, you know, I, this is as weird as it is. It's like, like, I hate stopping to eat. I don't, I could, I don't like food all that much. Um, I'm a very picky eater and that's, so I don't like food. Um, and every time I do eat a breakfast, then I'm hungry. Perfect. Corey, that's what we actually want. Do you stop to take a shit or are you too busy? 
Um, yeah. So, Corey, I'm not going to hear it. You need to eat breakfast in the morning, and I want to add more color in your food. I need you to eat a rainbow a day. So if you're going to just have an apple in the morning, then I'm going to call that a win. And if you're hungry a little bit later, I'm going to call that a win as well to where you actually have to like you're a disciplined guy. You run your discipline on your shooting, your discipline on your elk plans. Why can't you be disciplined on the fuel you put in your body? So you knew this was coming. You, I told you last night I was going to give it to you. So you're going to eat an apple when we get off this podcast and you're going to like have an apple to start your day off. It's got color. It's got phytonutrients. It's got fructose. We're going to start there. And then you're going to be hungry by lunch and I'm going to make you eat a chicken salad for lunch. And it's probably not going to be like convenient until you figure out how to do them fast. So just get a kale salad mix kit, dice up some chicken breast that you cooked up over the weekend or grilled, and you can put dressing on there, Corey, and you're going to have a chicken salad, and you've by 1 o'clock in the afternoon, you've had your iced coffee, an apple, and a chicken salad. And then in the afternoon, whenever we're going to have you have one more encounter with some maybe some cut-up raw veggies or something, maybe some celery with peanut butter or some chopped carrots or... Uh, whatever vegetables that I can get you to tolerate and then go work out and then you can have your dinner and your dinner is going to be a lean protein source, a clean carb and cooked veggies and potentially another salad. So we're going to fill you up more throughout the day to try to ward off that craving for salt and chips and snack foods in the evening. And it doesn't mean you can't have chips in the evening, but maybe we could have a certain amount of chips with hummus and that's it and maybe that'll be satiety will be more reliable because you backfilled early part of your day and your energy level should be higher and your body's ability to recover should be better because you're eating more of the way nature intended more real foods in front of you if you will what do you think about my proposed plan shoot me straight pretty much the same plan that Lamperge has been trying to do for the last ever since I met him, I'm I'm willing to do it. Um, you know, like I say, this was an eye opener. It was, you know, I really wasn't scared. I was a little nervous. My wife was probably more scared. Um, so yeah, I mean, I'm this. It's been weird because like last year, like I was, I felt in the best shape of my life. Like last year, just at age fifty um completed my my 100k uh just felt great and this year has been um a huge struggle Mm -hmm. um and i don't know if it's you know why um of it you know and that's what you know i want to get with hillary and, and do some blood and check my hormones and all my levels on on stuff to find out if it's what it is you know every year just you know just changed drastically and i don't know if it's stress from you know the new job the selling of the business to the COVID 19 um you know depression with the COVID 19 of watching people you know freak out with masks and the whole society thing going on oh god it's terrible or if or if it's just truly, I'm just getting old and my bad eating habits are just catching up to me. 
Um, yeah. But yeah, I, I've got to change something because, you know, right now, this this year, I'm just just struggling, struggling to to be motivated, struggling to uh, enjoy my workouts. You know, typically I'd, I'd get out on my runs and, you know, to go run 10 miles and just feel great and say, oh, that was awesome. It was a good run. Felt good. And right now I'll go out and run 10 miles and it's just painful. Mm. It's just not enjoyable. And uh, so I got to change something. Well, you do have awesome resources, you know, having a good relationship with Ryan and Hillary Lampers, you know, her being a, a natural path at the end of the day, she can do some things and she'll take good care of you and check your T levels and probably look at a whole bunch of things as far as which enzymes are high or low, where you're lacking. She could do a you know, she'll probably want to do a gut restoration approach. So she'll eliminate some things for you for a while, which would be really good to get your gut health checked, which she will, and then kind of elevate that to where your gut health comes back up. Uh, We get you to enjoy eating more of a rainbow approach, eating a little bit more frequently and taking more time to recover and regenerate, working on some mobility pieces. And, uh, you know, I'm 39, almost 39, and that's probably sounds young to you, but I am not the same level that I was just four or five years ago when I competed at CrossFit at a high level. Uh, and it's kind of depressing some days. Like even yesterday, I just certain certain weights on a barbell feel so much heavier than they should. But I have to remind myself, what is my end game? My end game is to hunt elk as long as possible and be there for my family. So it doesn't matter that I can't deadlift close to 500 pounds anymore. It doesn't matter. Uh, I want to be able to elk hunt limitlessly, and I know you can do the same, but gosh darn it, Corey, this is your wake-up call. So, And you have people, like I've somehow figured out a way to be in your life. I don't know how it happened, but we've met. You know Ryan, you know Hillary. You got you got some good resources, man. I think uh, this was a good wake-up call. And the reason why we're talking about it to the audience today is we want there are people out there in your same situation that have been running on borrowed time. So the cool thing is Corey Miller can control what he can control, and that is how much sleep you get, how you respond to stress, which thank God you you know enjoy working out, and then what you put in your body, and how you choose to recover and regenerate. Um, fortunately for you, you're into archery and elk hunting. That's a big why to motivate you year round. And, um, I think just in a short period of time with a few tweaks, you'll be running better than ever. You know what I mean? And feeling great. Yeah. I, you know, I feel confident in it. And like I say it, it was a wake up call, you know, it's, uh, I don't know. It's just it. It was. Uh, it was different. That's for sure. To to see, you know, really, it wasn't anything super, like, of things I've done in my life. That wasn't like, oh my god, that was the toughest thing I've ever done, and it put me in the hospital. And I think that's the part that freaks me out a little bit. <laughs> so, um, but yeah. Everybody's going to struggle with the depression thing to some degree. There's just going to be some days that aren't as good as others. You know, before we got on this podcast this morning, 
I don't flex my gratitude muscles enough, Corey. And I was making coffee and I just poured a cup. And my wife got up early. I, I was surprised to see her. I'm an early riser. And I was just like, you know what, Alicia? Look at this beautiful house that we've basically transformed. Look in our driveway. We got, you know, we got two trucks that that run. I got an archery range in my backyard out to 100 yards. Um, we got two healthy kids sleeping upstairs. Wow. We're the richest people on the earth. And I don't do that enough, man. And so if anybody listening is ever feeling down, you just got to flex some gratitude muscles. We're all super blessed. We all face different challenges. And I just want to tell you, Corey, I got so much respect for you to come on and like share your story. It's very personal. And I think it'll probably stir up some people to to do some self-reflection on what they can do better. I know there's certain things that I, I'm working on and and uh, as long as we're all trying to move in the right direction and make ourselves better, that's all we can ask for, right? Yeah, yeah. No doubt. All right, well, let's finish this podcast. We went a little long. What uh, What's your elk plans this year? Don't say where you're going, please. And uh, what are you excited about? I'm going to hunt Idaho again. Hunt my, my normal spot with me and my hunting partner, Avi. And uh, actually, Ryan Lampert is going to come and hunt with us for I think the last seven or eight days I think of the season so I'm super excited about that um, you know we've been successful over there where I hunt uh, more times than not and really anxious to see Ryan's approach on things of the the, the terrain on how he's going to hunt it versus how we've hunted it and uh, learn. You know, I think that's the the key of being a good elk hunter is able to learn and learn. Uh, every year you're learning, uh, you're failing and learning off those failures. So I'm excited to see Ryan's tactics. Um, uh, so that's kind of my plan. I don't, I don't honestly get a lot of time to hunt. Um, so just, just that in Idaho is the only thing I'm going to go do and. Um, and who knows, maybe, maybe later in the year, um, if things work out, maybe run over to Montana and do a whitetail doe hunt or something. Oh yeah. Uh, uh, that, those are usually pretty quick. Doesn't have to take a lot of time. Um, so I can kill two birds with one stone or something, be over there and do some work and take a day off here or there. What time do you, uh. Like, what time do you usually show up to elk camp, and, and how much time do you set aside for that? Um, so typically, you know, when I had the shop, I would I would also go the last 14 to 16 days of season. Um, and mainly it was because of the shop. Uh, by then, almost all my – it was usually the last week of Oregon when I would shut the stop down, and Washington was kind of over at that point. So um, – I never went early because of that. You know, I, I, I had the guilty conscience of shutting the shop down when people would need you. Um, so I would always go that. And um, last year, starting a new job, I, I didn't get my tag in time. Um, so I didn't get a hunt last year. Um, Idaho sold out last year. And so I, I popped over there the first week with some with my buddies and and called some elk in and 
and did set the first week and that was kind of my extent of hunting so i'm i'm chomping at the bit since mm. i didn't get a get a hunt for it'll be almost two years now for to hunt elk so no yeah, that's exciting cool yeah, I mean, it's fun going out and calling you don't have any stress about missing <laughs> yeah yeah honestly the caller is more important than the shooter if you're into that tactic that's that's without a doubt uh Corey, you're on instagram Corey underscore miller underscore pse and yeah and you're on facebook yep and anywhere else people can follow you got like a secret youtube channel or do you have a tiktok account or something uh, no no tiktok <laughs> the granddaughter's got that um no just pretty much just instagram and, and facebook um so I'm I'm not as social active as I was when I was in the shop, you know. Yeah. Um, uh, but I I still get get on there and kind of scroll through and and see and answer questions and and do stuff on there. So. What does a PSE stand for? Precision shooting equipment. Precision shooting equipment. Cool. Uh, you guys seen? Uh, so, our sales looking good with the addition of Mister Jonathan Dudley. Yeah, uh, extremely. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah, it's it's been uh, it's been a phenomenal year. If we could just get away from 2020, you know, we had COVID where we got shut down for five or six weeks. Mm-hmm. Uh, we just got back up, and and then actually while we were at Elk Summit, um, we had a fire in the factory, and which was you know, looking back on that, I guess. For me to be in the hospital, I guess that was a good time. The factory was shut down, so there was I was still taking orders in the hospital um, and writing down stuff and and doing stuff, but we couldn't actually move forward with anything. So um, we're just getting got the computers back up last night, last night, and I think hopefully we'll start seeing some some movement on some products again here in the next day or two. And yeah, it's just one thing after another this year, but. Other than that, I mean, everything's just been great. Um, we've got a great product line. Sales are, are doing fantastic. The shops are, are doing well with the bows. People are loving the bows. It's, uh, it's a good time to be working for PSE. Yeah, buddy. Cool. Well, take care of yourself. We'll stay in touch a little bit more now that uh, yeah, we've advertised your goals. I want to help, you know, motivate hold you accountable you need you know iron sharpens iron you can do the same for me you got my number thanks for coming on i appreciate you man all right well you good luck hunting we'll we'll talk before then i'm sure oh yeah all right guys this is Corey miller make sure that uh you give him a follow he's a stud he was super transparent and honest on this podcast which honestly man that's like a love language of mine and uh just learn from his and my mistakes and appreciate you guys checking out our podcast. Separation is in the preparation. We'll catch you on the next one. All right, guys, we are three weeks into July. That was a great podcast. We are in crunch time. Some of you are going to start elk hunting here in August, whether you live in Utah or you have a late August opener. It's time. It's time to really finalize things, spend as much time with your family as possible. Right now, it's more important about shooting one good shot a day versus several arrows. Uh, You might want to be tapering down in your workouts. Some of you in a position where you're still ramping up and you're breaking a sweat. 
you're getting your nutrition dialed, you're getting rid of unwanted LBs on your bod, you're testing gear, and you're just fine-tuning, you're visualizing, and you're double-checking your plans, double-checking your downloaded maps on base map, all that stuff. The devil's in the details, separation is in the preparation. Let's finish with a few uh, discount code readouts. These are always in the show notes, but I know many of you don't go to the show notes, so Vortex, the discount code is Elkshape, save 20% off apparel. Black Ovis, Elkshape, get 20% off any online purchase. If you need Sika gear, go ahead and pick up the phone, give them a call, tell them you're an Elkshape podcast listener, they'll take care of you. Wilderness Athlete, Elkshape, 30, save 30% off. Climate Sleep Systems, Elkshape, 20, will get you 20% off. Baku e-bikes. I will have an e-bike with me this year while elk hunting. Elk Shape 400 will save you $400 on an e-bike. Lakewood Products Elk Shape 2020 will get you 10% off. Crossover Symmetry discount code Elk Shape will get you 20 bucks off any package. Thank you guys. We'll catch you on the next one and uh, appreciate all your support. Keep shooting straight and we'll see you in the Elkwoods.